This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 243. And the quote of the day is, A good friend knows all of your best stories, but a best friend has lived them with you. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. And if you are digging this podcast, please do me a favor. Head over to drummersresource.com forward slash support, and you can pledge your support anywhere from a dollar a day to three dollars, or I'm sorry, a dollar a month to three dollars a month to five dollars a month to a hundred dollars a month. And what that does is helps pay for staff, equipment, hosting, all that other stuff. And while this is ad supported, everything still, you know, it costs money. So it costs real money for, you know, everybody has to get paid and, and, and things uh, need to keep getting fixed and, and updated and all of that stuff. So your support helps with the upkeep. So again, if you do get value out of this podcast, please consider supporting it at drummersresource.com forward slash support. I'm super excited to announce that Musicians Institute is now the official education sponsor of Drummer's Resource. And for those of you who don't know about MI, it's located in the heart of Hollywood. It's been there since 1977, and they have world-class faculty, guys like Kenny Aronoff and Gordon Campbell. They have a modern environment with recording studios and mini labs and hundreds of drums set up on campus. And then they also have a world-renowned curriculum and much much more. And you can expect to see a lot more great things from MI through Drummer's Resource. And I'm super excited that they are now the official education partners of Drummer's Resource. You can learn more about them at musiciansinstitute.com. Also, if you're looking to get bigger and better gigs, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs. And there you can sign up for a five-part email series. I'll send you a new email every day to help you master the secret weapons of getting the gigs that you deserve. Better paying gigs, higher profile gigs, and just bigger gigs in general. Find it all at drummersresource.com forward slash gigs. So let's get into the conversation today. This is with Liberty DeVito and Maddie Amendola, who who I had on the podcast previously connected Liberty and I, and coincidentally we, he emailed us and connected us, but Liberty and I hadn't spoken yet. And I coincidentally just ran into him at NAM and then got to see him play outside at the out on the outdoor stage at NAM. So it was a, a pretty serendipitous meeting, but the result of that and Maddie connecting us is that now he is on the podcast, which I'm super excited about. So Liberty has been, was the drummer for Billy Joel for years and and is on all of those seminal Billy Joel records, was a part of that band since he was 17 years old. And so he did that for, I think, 30 years or so. And we get all into that and and sort of how that that whole thing sort of disbanded and, and all of that. But then we also get into a lot of his current work that he does, including the Slim Kings, the Lords of 52nd Street, and also the Sessions. And the Sessions are a panel of professional musicians, lawyers, managers, and all that stuff who go around to different colleges and different places and talk about the music industry. So a really cool thing there as well. Dom Famolaro is part of that and a lady named Jules Holland, who I've been in contact with about getting on the podcast. So really great stuff from Liberty. And he's just a, he's a good dude. He's got a great sense of humor and, and has some amazing stories. So without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Liberty DeVito. Liberty, how are you, my man? Thank you so much for doing this. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I like this. I uh, kind of like laying on my bed doing an interview. <laughs> I like. I like to make it easy. I like to make it easy. So that way, there's no there's no travel. Especially we're on the East Coast, man. It's cold out. I don't want people to have to leave their house and no. go places. <laughs> no, it is cold out. I don't like. I hate the calls. <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, you've you've lived in New York your whole entire life. How do you deal with it? Actually, I moved to Florida for nine years. Really? Yeah. There's um, the key. Talk about getting bored, though. I mean, you know, I, you know, you have a love-hate relationship with anywhere you live. Right. Uh, you know, like I love New York because I can fall out of bed. And in Brooklyn, I can hit like 10 restaurants no matter which way I fall out of the bed. Right. Florida got – it was so nice all the time. It got boring. Where at, where at in Florida? I was in a place called Winter Park. It was just right above Orlando. Okay. My, uh, my in-laws live – we go down every year. They live in like the Delray area. Yeah, yeah. 
And every year, you know, they're they're snowbirds, but every year they're spending more and more time down there. And they're like, would you guys ever consider moving down here? My wife and I are like, hell no, I'm not no. moving down there. No, no, no. You don't want to do that. We live close to Disney and, and it was we were like a hotel. Right. But when people find out you live near Disney, they're there all the time. Mm. Can't get rid of them. Oh, we can just go down and stay with Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's you know nobody nobody's gonna come to New York in you know January February March December. No. <laughs> I like it. So I want to build just a little bit of backstory and context for you know the cats who don't know who you are. I'm sure that there's a very small percentage of the people listening who don't know who you are. Uh, but I know that you know you were born in New York City, um, grew up there, got inspired by the Beatles. Uh, you know, started playing with Billy Joel Pre- relatively. You were young when you started playing with him, right? Actually, uh, I was born in Brooklyn. My father was a Brooklyn cop, and so he moved us out to Long Island. So I that's where it. I grew up. So I grew up one town away from Billy, actually. Okay. He, I grew up in Seaford. He grew up in Hicksville. Um, and um, I was 24 years old when I got with Billy. Yeah. Young. So when you hear an angry young man, it was like the 24-year-old playing. Right, right. And, and now with my band, The Lords of 52nd Street, you know, we do all the Billy songs. It's with Richie Canada and Russell Javis from the original band. And when we do Angry Young Man, <laughs> it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a reminder of being 24. Sure. <laughs> so talk about a little bit um, with the with the Beatles and one, how they inspired you. But not only that, like where that took you. So I'm always I'm always interested to see not only, you know, the the people who influence you, but specifically how that influ- like how that changed you if it how that did it did it make you play a certain thing? Did it make you dig into certain types of music? Because that's what I think really crafted your sound is where you went from there, right? When I was when I was uh, in sixth grade, um I always loved music. I always used to sing along with the songs that, you know, on the radio was uh, Duke of Earl and, and mm-hmm. Remember Then by the Earls and just songs like that, you know, the Ronettes, all that kind of stuff. And um, I used to love music. And my mother always loved music. And um, so my cousin was selling a set of drums. My father bought me drums. And, uh, you know, uh, when, I, when I got a little older, I asked my dad, why did, you, why did you get me drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac back then. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I, I joined the sixth grade school band at grammar school. And I couldn't do the buzz roll through the Star Spangled Banner. And the teacher said, put the sticks down, DeVito. You'll never do anything with the drums. So I kind of got discouraged, put everything aside. You know, It amazes to me how many people I've had on here whose teachers have said something along those lines. Yeah. To, like really, told them to give up. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. discouraging. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. But no, that's it's, okay. So um, I um, got discouraged. Uh, now I'm in... I'm 13 years old. I'm kind of in eighth grade now. And um, I'm noticing these new kind of people walking in the hall and they were called girls. And I wanted to meet them. But in my school, the girls liked the guys that played sports. I tried playing baseball. That's how I found out I needed glasses. You know, I was just terrible at sports. So um, I wanted to meet these girls. So it wasn't until my heroes (laughs) came on the Ed Sullivan show in February of 64 and then they were in black and white and I'm watching the TV and I noticed as the, as the, the camera panned off the Beatles, it panned the audience and all these girls were like screaming for these not that good looking guys. <laughs> and I looked at light the, bulb. I, yeah. I looked at my sister in the room with her friends and they were screaming on a black and white TV at these not that good looking guys. And I said, mm, this can work. Forget the buzz roll. I'm doing what that guy's doing. I want to be in a band that makes girls scream. So that's when I started taking drumming seriously. And uh, my my mother sent me for lessons at at a a music store that was local. And the guy wanted to teach me jazz. And I asked him, when are you going to teach me how to play like Ringo? And he said, why do you want to learn how to play like him for? He stinks. And I told him, I said, I saw all these girls screaming for him last night on TV. And I don't see anybody knocking down your door. So that was the end of my lessons. So the way I learned was <laughs> I put the records on and I would play to the Beatle records uh. you know, and, and other kinds of records. And um, as I was doing that, <clears throat> I realized that I couldn't follow the song. I didn't know where I was in the song. 
So I had to learn the lyrics to sing along with the song to know where I was. Mm. As you, couldn't, I was you couldn't feel sort of those, that time. No, I couldn't. I was too young to feel the time. Um, I didn't know how to write music. I couldn't read music. So I learned the lyrics and I would sing along with the song. And I realized as I was singing, and, the, and like when Paul was singing a song, Ringo did a drum fill. When Paul stopped singing or to take the band into a more exciting part of the song, like the bridge or the chorus. And that's what I took into the studio with Billy. That kind of knowledge of, of how Ringo created a song. You right. know, a great drummer doesn't necessarily stick out in a song. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I was fortunate enough to play with a guy who wrote some fantastic songs. He could sit down at the piano, play piano, and you would say, that's a great song. How right. am I going to get on that song? I want to be on it without killing it. Sure. You know, so um, going back to the Ringo thing was like, how do you create a part around what he just created? You're essentially learning songwriting, but not knowing that you're learning it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right, right, which is it, and I think that one. Well, there's a couple of things. One, I think that playing along with records is such an underrated thing to do. I mean, I, but I think it's so important because, like you said, you you know, you're learning where these things are happening. You start to intimately know these tunes. It's one thing to t- throw on a tune once, play along with it, and say, "Oh yeah, I can play that beat." Right. You know, right. but to, to intimately get involved inside of songs, you start hearing things and. You know, you start noticing changes and you start hearing, you know, there may be there may be uh, harmonies that you didn't hear or or different things happening. Uh, Do you think that do you if if you were sort of to go back, would you redo everything the same way? Would you learn the same way you learned? Uh, I I would definitely learn because um, not knowing how something went like, um, say, the Purdy Shuffle, right? Right. When the Purdy Shuffle came out. Uh, people could write it out and then got, drummers would imitate it by uh, reading the music that Purdy created. Mm-hmm. I couldn't read music, so I had to listen and try to figure out what he was actually doing. And um, I came up with a totally different thing than he does. Right. And, and, it, and it works uh, as a shuffle on different songs. You know, like uh, there's a song called Big Man on Mulberry Street. Mm-hmm. I did I did this quick like but but it was done with my hi hat because I didn't realize he was doing the same thing on the snare drum right and it's on Big Man I'm Over Street on the the bridge album with Billy uh, what's his last name Joel <laughs> 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 yeah so um it was cool I I liked learning that way and I think a lot of like you said it's it's very underrated learning uh, through records. Did so? Did you go the whole? Did you go the whole sort of studied route too, and you know, lock in with a teacher, you know, learn learn all the rudiments, go through all of that stuff too, or was it totally just like playing records? Just records. I want. I wanted to know when I listened to. See, I had a lot of friends that uh, weren't in the music business, but they just loved music. Like Mm -hmm. the the shoemaker in my town, his name was that, and um, he used to say, Libby, did you, you ever hear this? Uh, and he'd give me a, 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 a record, a jazz record, and I would listen to it. Um, and, and I would come across, like, like say a song like Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra, right? What made it feel so good? Why did that song feel so good when I put it on? Right. Why, did, why does I'm Down by the Beatles feel so good when you put it on? What, what is he doing that's different. Mm-hmm. I tell kids in my clinics when I do a clinic, I say, listen to Phil Rudd with ACDC. Anybody can play what he's playing, but to make it feel like he's, it feels right. is amazing. Right. It's right. an amazing thing to do. And it mm-hmm. has a lot to do with what he's playing has to do with what the other guys in the band are playing, too. Mm-hmm. Drummers usually don't listen to the other guys in the band. They want to lead and just go for it. You know? Right. We're egomaniacs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are the center of the band, but the band is only as good as the drummer. Right. You know, I agree so, with you there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the reason why I asked that, because it'd be interesting to get your opinion about it, because there's there's sort of two schools. One is, you know, go learn, learn, playing along with records, playing in bands and things like that. 
And then the other side is going the complete scholastic route. But a lot of times, this is my opinion, I'd love to hear yours, is that if you go in the scholastic route, I think it's great. And I think that, you know, I encourage people to learn their rudiments and study out of books and all that stuff. But at some point, you have to take what you've learned and convert it into music. Because playing a paradiddle is not musical. No. But, if, but what you do with it, you can be musical. Like you can look at Steve Gadd and he plays music with it, but I'm sure he's not thinking, okay, I'm just playing this paradiddle and then inverting it. So uh, the do you find that people who study scholastically are more or less musical than rather than just sort of learning just music? Because I don't know. I It's hard for me. It's it's a, It's a hard question to ask, but what I'm saying is that that there's a difference between drumming, playing drums and playing music. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I, I've always loved music. Right. When I saw the Beatles on TV, I mean, I wanted to play drums because I had drums already, but I really wanted to be Paul McCartney. You know, right. he was out front singing. And, you know, I, I think I every drummer secretly wants to be the guy out front. Definitely <laughs> wants to be the guy out front. So, um, you know, music is very important because when, when I played with Billy, you know, us as musicians, we listen to music as like uh, you'll hear something on the radio and you'll go, ah, that song could have been better if the bass player played something different if he played this part instead. You know, we we analyze everything. And I kind of compare it to uh, the the pizza syndrome, I call it. I said, if if pizza were music, musicians would take a bite and think of it as, well, the sauce is good, has maybe a little too much oregano in it. The cheese is fine. It could have been a little aged a little more. The pizza crust is, is okay. People that listen to music eat the pizza and don't really care. They see it as pizza. Right. You know, so how do you make that, take all those ingredients and just make it that someone just wants that pizza? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish I didn't play music just so I could just hear music as just hearing it. Yeah. Without saying, oh, man, what's that bass player? Oh, man, I don't really, I don't dig the tone on that guitar you know it's like i I just want sometimes i just want to listen to music and pretend that i know nothing about about your wife, music do your wife ever look at you and go stop you're yeah. ruining the song for me yeah yeah it does it all the time i'm like oh do you hear that thing and she's like i don't i don't hear what you're what you're hearing my wife loves you too you know, she, uh-huh. she, she's younger than i, I love i love her too oh oh never mind <laughs> that was funny <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, when a U2 song comes on, I'll start talking about the bass because you know he just pedals the the uh, the the uh, ghost the note right. the root note, and and she'll say I, I don't hear that <laughs> you know stop I don't hear it leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about just you know ignorance is bliss once in a while if you could just yes. listen listen to a track and you know just enjoy it. Um, I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Billy years and 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 some things that maybe uh, maybe some people don't know about sort of that that whole touring. I mean, you guys were this. You're in a major band. You're doing major tours, world tours. I mean, you guys were you know the biggest thing in the world for a long time. And I want to talk a little bit about that world in terms of of what sort of like the day in the life looks like at that big stage and then maybe also some like misconceptions of, of what it is and what it's not while you're on the road. <laughs> well, in the beginning, it was totally different than it was at the end. Well, I feel like everything, you know, there now was, is different than it used to be too. In the beginning, we used to have this thing where we used to say, uh, it was like, um, get, uh, go play the gig, right? We used to go play the gig. Applause, applause, applause. Thank you very much. Drink, 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 find a girl, boom, 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 go to sleep, wake up the next day, drink, drink, drink. (laughs) That's the way it was. Once we all got married and started to have families, it was different. Right. Then then it was like trying to be healthy, let's go to the gym, you know, take vitamins, stuff like that. Let's pace ourselves a little more. Sure. You know, but the thing was um, that. When we played smaller clubs, it was more enjoyable than playing gigantic arenas and, and stadiums. Why because is that? You're kind of out of touch with the people that are listening to you. Yeah. It's nice when you people are close. 
Like sometimes I have a, a band called the Slim Kings. And also when the Lords of 52nd Street play, we play in smaller places like theaters or, or uh, bigger clubs. And it's nice when you can see the people and how they're reacting to you. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in these stadiums, or uh, you you can maybe see the first two rows, and right. that's it. Right. You know? I've so, I've actually I've played uh, I mean, I've played in you know thirty thousand seat club or stadiums a few times, and I felt that way. But like literally, when I say a few times, I literally mean a handful of times. Yeah. So. I could never get the connection with the audience, and I and I always thought, oh, maybe it's just because I haven't been, I haven't done this fifty times or a hundred times. And I always loved playing, like, you know, I enjoy fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand seat clubs, right? You know, but I did, I never knew that if it was just because I'm not used to playing those big stadiums. But no, I, I think also um, when the stadiums started getting bigger and the arenas started getting bigger, we started to play for each other, right? Like having fun with the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. That, that's why at the end, when it wasn't fun anymore, when there was nobody except me from the records, it just wasn't fun anymore because they couldn't relate to when we used to drive and rent the cars. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were getting used to the private plane. They, they came in on the private plane, you know? Right. Um, so they didn't know what it was like to, to be in rent the cars and play a field house at a college and stuff like that. So that that's where uh, you kind of lose that, and mm-hmm. you lose you lose touch with what you're actually doing. You know? Do you think that you appreciated that gig more because you were there in those early days, and you slowly you slowly built it up versus versus just like being being you know hired at that at the stage where they were already in jets and tour buses and you know five star oh, yeah. hotels. Being a creative part of that whole Billy Joel thing, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I mean some of the songs, you know, all the songs, we, we created our own parts to those songs. Right. Those, those songs became hits. You know, um, one of his managers, he was married to his, his, first, his first wife, and she was his manager. And she told me once, she goes, I heard those songs when he left the house, and I heard those songs when he came back home after being in the studio. And you guys changed them. Right. Phil, Phil Ramon once was asked, what made Billy the phenomenon he became? And he said he wrote great songs and his band came up with great arrangements. So, you know, having a major part and playing those parts in front of people mm-hmm. was amazing. But then when the other guys aren't there, they played the parts. Right. And now those guys are starting to make up their own parts that aren't as good as the ones that were on the record. Right. It kind of, it got kind of tough. But in the early years, or even as you as you went on, was there ever... There was never. You guys were never members, right? You were just. You were employees. Yes, always okay. employees. Okay. Billy, w- Billy was the only one signed to the record deal. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Uh, I wasn't sure. I mean, it got to because there was lawsuits and all stuff, all that yeah. stuff afterwards with writing and. Well, it was more with um, uh, internet royalties and stuff like that that were all going to um, Billy's office. Okay. You know. And I got you. stuff had come out that there was no deals for and then mm-hmm. I found out I found out that in one of the contracts I did sign something that gave it away you know uh, <laughs> so how did it work with with the records did you guys get points on the record too we didn't get points we got bonuses okay uh, every time it sold a certain amount of copies we would get a bonus I got you I got you know you. which which kept us playing hard because we wanted it to sell a lot you know sure Sure, that makes sense. You know, so what what was the um I know that obviously you guys had a great relationship and then went you know went through the lawsuit and I don't know how much you can you can talk about that. Um but how at the end how did it how did it turn out? Are you guys still are you guys still amicable or do you guys not talk anymore or how does that how's the relationship now? Well, hold on. Let me let me time into this phone call. <laughs> no, we, we we I haven't spoken to Billy since I saw him across the table with lawyers. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. And what year was that? I don't even remember. No. It was a while ago. Um, no, we don't talk. I don't talk to anybody in the band except I see Dave Rosenthal once in a while. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with Crystal Talaferro, uh in the recent years. But uh, everybody else, eh, no, no, nah. So, and without getting, you know, without dwelling on this, uh, what, are, what are your sort of, what, how do you feel about the fact that 
you guys started this thing, you built this thing up and worked together for all these years and now are not speaking and, and, you know, the band, you know, the band is completely different and all the things. Uh, it's obviously hard to see that, you know, foresee that coming in the future. Um, but looking back, you know, how is it, is it tough to deal with the fact that you guys, you know, are no longer talking and no longer working together? Well, I think I, with Billy, I, I, I'm going to speak for myself because I can't speak for Billy, but I love the guy. Um, I still do because of, we created some things that are, are will live forever. Right. I mean, every time I hear scenes from a time restaurant on the radio, it's like, well, we did that together. You know, we went places that our wives couldn't go. You know, we, right. we, we created stuff. And if Billy was the father of those songs, the other guys and myself were at least the uncles to those songs, you mm-hmm. know? So um, now when you watch other people play them, uh, it, it's kind of, it, it's a tribute to us to for, for all those tribute bands that are playing the songs and, and the guys that are playing with Billy to play the songs, but it's not the same. They don't have that spark. You know, me and Doug and Russell, when, when we, we played with Billy, those guys played up until the bridge album. And then after we came back from the Soviet Union, that's when they were cut. Um, so there, that was like, what, 10 albums worth. Right. We had a band before we met Billy and we, I knew Russell when he was 15 years old, mm-hmm. you know? And so we were friends for a really long time. We could say something and the other guy could relate and Richie Kanata, you know, we were just buddies. We were like going to war together when there was nothing. We were in the rent the cars, you know? Right. And then we, we achieved this great success. And then all of a sudden strangers started coming in, you know? Sure. <laughs> and, it, and it got weird. Hmm. And I, I think about that, too, where, you know, guys will be in bands for years or a band will be together for years. And then just one, you know, one guy drops out or gets fired and then another guy drops. And, the, and there's always sort of this replacement of of people. So was there like some some big thing or was it just sort of time? Well, the first thing was um, uh, who went first? Richie Kanata left first. Mm-hmm. You know, Richie has a very successful studio on Long Island. And uh, after he left Billy, he played with the Beach Boys and a whole bunch of other people. He did very well. But to replace Richie, because Richie was not only the sax player, he was also the utility man. He played keyboards, he sang, and all the stuff like that. To replace Richie, it took two people to replace Richie. Right. And um, so that that took a bit of getting used to. But it was fine because it was still Russell and Doug was still there. And uh, so the core of the band was still there. The rhythm section was still there because we replaced uh, Richie with a sax player and a keyboard player. Mm-hmm. So the core of the band was still there. So it was still fun, still joking, stuff like that. But when Doug and Russell left, um, that's when all new people came in. And that, that's when it was starting to get strange. Because right. people, people will fight to be close to Billy, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's when jealousy takes over and that, that, that will destroy a band. <laughs> oh yeah. That'll do it quickly. Yeah. So yeah. were you working in other, were you doing other projects and other studio work and other touring work while you were playing with Billy too? Oh yeah. I toured with Stevie Nicks, Phoebe Snow and um, Phil Ramone used to get us a lot of work with uh, other artists. Okay. You know, we we recorded with uh, John Hyatt. We recorded with gee, uh, can't remember Meatloaf. I recorded with, and you know, nice. all went while playing with Billy. I got you. I got you. Yeah, I actually, um, I saw you. Well, we met at Nam, and then yeah. you know, shortly after we met, I walk outside, and you were outside playing with Ronnie. Ronnie yeah. Spector. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I, I said, I think that's Liberty playing. I walked out, and they zoomed in real quick, and I was like, yeah, that is. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting. I just talked to you, you know, whatever, yeah. a, a half hour before that or something. But interesting. That's that's the power of Nam for you. That um, was that was classic. You know, um, to, did you did you stay till the end? I, I was I was out there for about forty five minutes, and then we went inside, and we had to meet somebody in there. And I was inside for about I don't know a half hour. Came back out. You guys were still playing. Yeah, so it was a long. It was a long set. Did you see when Hal Blaine came up? I did not see when Hal Blaine came up. Oh, God. It was classic. I mean, 
you know, he doesn't have the power that he had. He's 80 something years old. Right. But when he sat down to play Be My Baby and he started it, it was like, wow, that feels just like the record. (laughs) That guy sounds like Hal Blaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was disappointed when I found out, when I first found out that Hal Blaine was eight of my favorite drummers. What's that? I was disappointed when I found out that Hal Blaine was eight of my favorite drummers. (laughs) (laughs) The dude is, I mean, that's one guy that I would love to, to have on here to talk about. Just, I mean, the, just the body of work, the, just everything he's done, the feel the I mean, he's just, he's, he's Hal Blaine. I think, I think he was on, uh, he won the Grammy for record of the year, eight years in a row or something like that. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. And he, I mean, he's, I don't know if he, how many records he's been on because everybody argues over, you know, J.R., Bernard, and Hal, like, right. you know, who played on the most records, which I don't think that they'll ever be able to, to figure out because no. those guys were cutting records and, you know, they were not getting not getting credit for them or some of the records were for other artists and they would get shipped here and shipped there and yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. I heard that for a while they they had they passed a law that because people's credits were getting lost that they the singer or the artist had to be in the room when they were recording yeah like the unions did it so what they would do is they would get like the janitor to come in <laughs> and say that they that the janitor was the artist <clears throat> and they're recording the track for this person and so the artist didn't have to be there and then they could use the tracks on whatever they wanted. <laughs> I never heard of that but I, you know I guess it's the same thing when uh, Carol King uh, and uh, uh, Jerry Goffin wrote locomotion they used her maid to sing the lead on the, and it made really? it on the record yeah <laughs> why is it just because it was cheaper or just- no, it was like we have this record we need to make a demo of it. you'll sing it please <laughs> it's insane yeah. The, I, I feel like the record or the you know the music business was just the wild wild west years ago and people just sort of no know, it definitely was did whatever they wanted to yeah this session is brought to you by my friends at DW drums and they have been supporting the podcast for over two years now and I could not be happier about this partnership that we have not only are they great people not only are they do they make great drums but they also support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world, all over the world, excuse me, like this podcast and much more. And they really are just, just an amazing group of people and they're a family and they have taken me into the DW family. And I'm very thankful for that and thankful for the support of the podcast. And that keeps it free for all of you. So do me a favor, please thank them and find out all this great stuff that they have going on at dwdrums.com. This session is also brought to you by my friends at Evans Drumheads, and they want to remind you to let No Circle box you in. Now, the Evans Level 360 gives you the most consistent fit for your drums, so you can get a greater tonal range, effortless tuning, and the freedom to express yourself any way you want. And who doesn't want to express themselves? You can learn more about the Level 360 and all of Evans Heads at EvansDrumheads.com. Hey, listen, if you're looking for a great pro shop that can give you some really customized service, check out drumsetc.com. These guys are a pro shop owned by a drummer, ran by drummers, and they are one of the best drum shops I've ever been to, and I've been dealing with them since college. So you can learn more about them at drums, etc., drumsetc.com. You can also give them a call at 1-800-922-DRUM. And not only do they sell most of the products that you hear advertised on the podcast, but they also give you really great service. And you can call there, you can talk to them, and the person who answers the phone is going to be the person who walks you through your order, who packs packs your box for you. And if you have any issues with your order, they're the person that you can deal with as well. So it's a pro shop for drummers, by drummers. And check them out, please, at drums, etc., etc., Dot com. I promise you will not regret it. Now let's get back into it with the one and only Liberty DeVito. Speaking of the music business, I want to talk to you about the sessions, which you, you are a part of. And yes. tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, I've, talked to, uh, I've talked to Jules about it. I've talked to Don Famalara about it. 
Um, and it's basically a, a a panel, a group that goes around to different locations and talks about the ins and outs of the music business, right? Yes, it does. And that panel changes. Um, who who can be there? Who can't be there? We get a, a special person to be there mm-hmm. uh, at every different one. Um, I think the last one, it was a small one at NAMM, uh, just Dom and Paul Quinn uh, were on the panel along with, I forget who. Who, but uh, Kenny Aronoff was uh, the drummer that at uh, that moment. Okay. Um, so it, it changes. We've had Bernard Purdy on them. Jr. has been on them. Uh, so many great people have been on on the panels with us. It's been it's really good, and the kids really appreciate it because it's like we're telling. I, I'm telling my story to these kids who want to be in the same business that I'm in. Right. So I'm, I'm not a, not only are they hearing about my successes, they're hearing about my failures too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really nice um, to know what not to do. Sure. Not only what to do in the music business, but what not to do in the music business. Mm-hmm. You know, and having a lawyer on the panel is, uh, you know, I, that's the biggest regret I have is that I didn't spend money to have a lawyer half the time. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. I just, because I, I always thought that me and Billy were buddies. Mm-hmm. You know, he would never do me wrong. But, you know, it wasn't him, it was the people behind him that, you know, that 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 that's their job to save Billy money. Sure. Well, if if what if, if we didn't have lawyers, we wouldn't need lawyers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? So do you guys? Is it a? Is it like a monthly thing, or is it just? Does it just come up whenever whenever people schedule it, or how does it work? Well, it works around the uh, colleges because we go to uh, music schools, or uh, maybe sometimes an event at a, at a music store if, if it's a bigger okay. store. But so usually it's around when school is in, you know, that time of the year. Okay. And, okay. Uh, um, you know, it, 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 um, it has to be set up with the uh, teachers and the people that run the school. And, you mm-hmm. know, so it, it takes time to set it up. But once it's done, you know, kids show up and they love it. Then we have a jam at the end. Kids come up and play with us, play with me, play with Dom, you know. Nice. Yeah. And, the, and uh, this is something that's – sort of near and dear to my heart because I think that there's a big difference between the drumming business and the music business. And I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast may, you know, may or may not know the difference of the two, but also that a lot of times we as drummers or or musicians in general get into sort of get into the music business quickly and are in there and say, okay, I don't know the ins and outs. I don't understand what royalties are. And I don't understand, you know, I don't understand what this is or what that is or how touring works or, or, you know, how I should be handling my business and all those sorts of things. And so I talk about it, not a lot on the podcast, but I talk about it once in a while on the podcast. And I, I'm always trying to educate musicians out there about the music industry as well as the drumming industry, because I think that it's important because at the end of the day, I think most of the people are trying to get into the music business. Well, the, 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 the sad part of it was when I was playing first playing drums, the one question that every drummer asked was what size sticks do you use? And that was it. Really? You know? Not, there was nothing about business. Right. Forget about it. Uh, you know, um, what size sticks do you use? How, how many ply are your drums? Mm-hmm. You know, what heads do you use? That kind of thing. That's how drummers talk to each other. Of course. Not like, you know, you're afraid to ask, are you receiving royalties on, on that? Did you mm-hmm. sign with the company or did you sign just with the artist? Or, right. you know, uh, right. how much do you get when you go on the road? You know, stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we are in a business that there's always somebody that can, wants to take our place. Always someone to take our place. So to stay at that that level of that financial level that you you're comfortable at mm-hmm. is really difficult, and it takes a lot of maneuvering in and out personally with the person that you're working for. Because if if you're not good tonight, you will lose your gig tomorrow. Right. And that person that's going to play for nothing is right on your coattails. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, people got to know that. There's a whole. Th- it, uh, I did uh, a documentary called The Hired Gun. I don't know if you saw it yet. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I know that you did that, and I want to watch it. Yeah. Well, there's uh, um, 
Rob, Zomb- Rob Zombie is talking in there and he's, he's talking about it's not only the music, the hang is probably the most important thing. Right. Because if you're finding, you want to find a great drummer, there's probably 10,000 of them out there, right? Then you want to find a great drummer that plays your style. That cuts it way down to right. like, to like, you know, maybe 10 drummers, right? Then you got to find a drummer that you can hang with on the bus for 24 hours. That cuts it way, way down to maybe two guys. It's like, who do you want to, it's, it's who do you want to date for the next, you know, eight exactly. months Exactly. <laughs> on the road? You can go out with a girl that's great in bed, but as soon as you walk into a social uh, environment, she embarrasses you. you know, it's Game like, over. Yeah. Yep. And I think that, you know, I don't, and I don't want to generalize, but I don't think that a lot of people who haven't been in the situation realize sort of the difference between being a member of the band versus being a sideman and don't understand, you know, that even though these guys are playing 30 or, you know, 30,000 seat venues, you know, they're not like, they're not killing it and, and driving Ferraris and living in mansions. No, they're not. We're we're not. Um, You know, I, I think, like myself, uh, Billy was signed to the label. We signed with Billy. Uh, right. I think I think um, Bon Jovi and uh, John Bon Jovi and um, what was his name? The guitar player? Uh, uh, Richie Sambora. Richie Sambora. They were the only two signed to the label. I don't think Tico and all them are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're kind of like hired guns too. But they're part of a thing that's called Bon Jovi. I'm sure John takes care of them, you know. Right. But in the end, it's John's band. Sure. You know, um, John Cougamellencamp, another one. Kenny worked for him. Mm -hmm. They weren't all signed to the label. Well, yeah, I actually just I just talked to him uh, a couple weeks ago about that, you know, and he was like, no, I, you know, I worked for him. He paid me well, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't a wasn't a member of the band and the difference between like, if you're the drum, if you're part of the band, right. like if you're part of, you know, whoever fish or Kings of Leon or something like that, and you're the drummer or Chad Smith, right. it's a big difference than yeah, being and the, the higher guy. And the, the question that I had at the end with Billy was like, what did Ringo do for the Beatles that me, Kenny, uh, Tico, didn't do for those artists that we played with. Mm-hmm. We did the same thing that Ringo did, except Ringo was in the Beatles. He was four guys signed that paper, not just right. one. Right. It's yeah. a it's a business, and you're either an owner right. of the business or you're an employee of the business. Exactly. Exactly. Right. right. It's an interesting. It's an interesting thing because now I had a long. Do you know you know Daniel Glass, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Daniel and I were talking about it at Nam. How. How is there a way that, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. This is going to be a very long winded question, but so there's a guy (laughs) named Shep Gordon, who's a a very famous, uh, uh, manager agent in from Hollywood. Right. I saw his documentary. Okay. So he created the celebrity chef and he was basically saying that chefs years ago got treated like crap. They would, they would go in, they would get hired for these like ritzy events. They would have to bring their own food. They didn't get paid for it. They got put up in, you know, substandard conditions and all this stuff. And, and Shep was like, these guys are artists. Let me change this. And he created the celebrity chef. And now you can become a chef and, you know, be wildly successful. And it kind of made me think about that in terms of us as drummers, as sidemen, not that it's that bad, but there's, there's a huge delta between the guy whose name is on the bill and the sidemen in terms of compensation, in terms of, you know, accommodations and all of those things. And do you, do you see any way to sort of fix that problem and, and, and make that Delta uh, less wide and maybe have some way of sidemen getting more money or having more stability or, you know, things like that? Because well, now everybody will just do it, you know, they'll they'll undercut everybody and they'll say, Oh yeah, I'll do that gig for three hundred dollars a night or whatever and Well you gotta you gotta remember that when when I talk about Billy, Mellencamp, Bon Jovi, those also are the guys that are writing the songs and they're singing the lead. Mm-hmm. They're 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 in they're like Tom Jones. They're like, you know, uh Michael Jackson. Right. You know, 
but they wanted to be surrounded by a band to make their sound. Quincy Jones made Michael Jackson sound. He's a producer. Right. He got points on the record. He worked it out. If I had come up, like I came up with the beat to Just The Way You Are. If I had walked up to Billy and said, look, I came up with this beat. It made the song better. Um, how about you give me a couple points on the song or some royalties on the song? It would have been at that time for me to have that discussion with him. Mm-hmm. Whether he whether he said yes or no is would be totally up to him. But if I didn't do it at that time, too late. It's done. It's gone. Once but it's, what about if touring bands got a piece of the touring revenue? Well, here's the deal with touring bands today. It's like when you sign with a record deal, you sign a 360 deal, right. which, which means that the record company has some of your publishing. They take some of your touring money. They take, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So to make a deal like that today would be very difficult because everything you're taking out of. And then also, if you get if you do get a deal like that, would you be willing to pay for some of the production? Because the lead singer guy who signed to the company is paying the production. Sure. Like Billy hires the trucks, Billy hires the sound, Billy hires the, the lights and he hires everybody. Are you willing to do that too? You know, I, I mean, I would be if I can get a piece of the profit. Sure. Yeah. And, and it'll make you play stronger. Yeah. To get to bigger places. Right. Right. I, I think, and I don't know the answer. Um, it's just an interesting concept to me that there's, you know, and especially like, uh, you know, you guys are going, I mean, I know guys who are going out and they're playing, you know, 30,000 seat venues and they're, you know, it's not, I mean, they're making decent money, but it's not as much as everybody thinks it is. No, especially you know? the country guys. They, yeah. uh, you know, I know uh, some country guys that play with major country artists and they sleep on the bus. They shower at the venue. They don't yeah. even get a hotel room half the time. Right. Right. Yeah, I know Nashville is sort of notorious for that. Yeah. For, you know, paying their guys like literally like a couple hundred bucks a night. Yeah. You know, which is insane. It's 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 absolutely insane. But at the same time, it's like if you don't want to do it, somebody else can do it. Exactly. Somebody exactly. else will do it. But what I what I guess my thing is, and I don't even know how you do this, but what if there is no one else that you can get because everyone is in the union or something that you have to pay X amount of dollars for a person at X venue or whatever. It's not going to happen, but there will always be somebody. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. You know, the thing to do though is, is now I have to say this about uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Rich Redman, you know, Rich, uh, Rich is a good buddy of mine. Yeah. He has taken wh- whatever he does with, with the, the country singer that he plays with. Mm-hmm. He, he has taken the fact that he has become popular through that country singer and parlayed it into something greater uh, with his with his camps and his uh, clinics and his videos and all stuff like that, you know. So smart. It, it's like taking the money that you make and investing it, and that you know. I, I was always told, and I, and I always said that you will never become rich by uh, playing with the artists that you're playing with. But you can become rich by investing the money in something else that you make with the artists that you're playing with. Sure. Yeah. And you know, like, so, think about all the relationships that you have, you know, from playing with Billy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can use those to to create different businesses or do camps and clinics and and yeah. all sorts uh, of stuff. I get calls to play with people all the time because I played with Billy. Sure. You know, and uh, the thing that Rich did is is just like got himself on this thing that just keeps building. Like Kenny did the same Kenny's thing. Same, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a great thing. So what advice do you have for people who are coming up now who who want to do this, who want to – because I know that you have the sessions thing, and I'm sure you get asked that a lot, or you offer sort of your, your two cents of what – first of all, what the – what the landscape is now because it's totally different than it was in you know the 70s 80s and the 90s and and what what do you suggest for people who are coming up well learn a little bit about the law learn a little bit about the business of music because music is a business mm-hmm. and i think it's it's it might be a slightly above the corruption of the mafia <laughs> just like just slightly r- above. slightly above it but um, there's so much to know. I mean, uh, you, you have to have a lawyer. You get, a, you get like Paul Quinn, the lawyer on our, on the sessions, says, 
get a lawyer first, then get a manager because a lawyer will read the contract. You can fire your lawyer at any time. You sign a contract with a manager, you're doomed for as long as that contract says you are mm-hmm. assigned to him. You know, uh, so a lawyer is very important to have. Many times I, I thought, ah, it's a thousand bucks for a lawyer. I, I'm not going to spend a thousand bucks. I'll just mm-hmm. do it myself. Whew, I would have made so much more money. Right. You know, so. You got to protect like, yourself. Yeah, things like that, you know, to protect yourself. There's, um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. I was thinking of lawyers and protecting yourself. And my question, sort and of, it, you know, you maybe you're thinking about bringing prophylactics on the road when you beat the girls. <laughs> maybe, yeah, protecting like. yourself. Yeah, yeah. What the hell was I gonna? I was gonna ask you about that. Oh, what I was gonna say is that, oh, I, I feel like a lot of times the the idea of the business side of things and money and lawyers and contracts and all that stuff sort of scares people away. And they just say, no, man, I'm just an artist, you know? And I just, I just, you know, I just want to be an artist and I don't want to have to worry about all that stuff. Yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I said, I don't really care if I become rich or anything like that. I just want to play music. Right. Well, I regret saying that, you know, (laughs) Um, because I, I think I, you have to marry the two, right? Well, just yesterday, some, some guy wrote on Facebook, like, I, I don't want to be rich and famous. I just want to play music. And I said, look, here's the deal. You play music, fame will find you. And if you're not taking the money, somebody else is going to take it from you. Right. You know, right. so, you know, you got to think, I want to be rich and famous. Yeah. <laughs> There's gonna a guy. A, you're going to have a family one day. You're gonna, of course. Uh, you send your kids to school you're gonna feed them you know right there's there's a guy chase uh chase jarvis who i had on here he's a a world-class photographer and he his whole thing is i don't i don't make art to make money i make money to make art yeah so he's like the more money i make then the more art i can create and the the cooler stuff that i can do and you know like what if you made enough money to take your own band out with a tour bus and all that stuff? And it didn't really matter if you made money or not. You could just go out and play these venues and, and yeah. live it up on the tour bus. That yeah. would be too bad. How about you make enough money to build a studio in your house and you can write your own songs and start right. recording? You know? Right. Yeah. You, you want money. You, everybody wants money. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm with you. And, and you know, and if you – if you're bad at that area and if you you're not a good business guy or you're you know you're not too keen on the on the money side of things get somebody else who is yeah that's get a, a friend do. of yours or a, you know a lawyer or a manager or something someone who can who can handle that side of things for you and at least help you make educated decisions anyway. and and don't be afraid to ask questions if if you i i have a drummer here in brooklyn i won't mention his name or the band that he's in but he called me up. They're very popular, too. I mean, they're, they're up for Grammys and everything. He called me up and, and he said, can you tell me how you remember a song when you're in the studio? <laughs> you know, uh, at least he had the balls to say that, sure. you know, to ask me that question. And I sat and had coffee with him. I explained to him what it was like for me to be in the studio, because when you hear the record, you think it's like instantaneous. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he's a genius. There's a lot of failures, too. You right, know? right. What are some what are some notable failures that you have? Well, there was the song "My Life." Mm-hmm. You know, um, Phil Ramone wanted me to play a straight the straight bass drum in that and play straight ahead, and I was like, "I'm not playing that disco shit. I ain't. I'm not playing it." He threw something on the on the on the um, recording board, and he looked at me and he said, "What have you been in this business maybe for twenty minutes, and you're going to tell me what you're not going to play?" I went out and played it, and every time I walk past the gold record on my wall, I think <laughs> of that. <laughs> There's a reason why he is who he is. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Respect your elders, please. Sure. Sure. What are some – do you think that some of the mistakes that, that people make in the business are that ego and that they, they, they're not respecting their elders and things like that? Well, I think I think you need to to stick to what you believe, you know, as an as an artist. But, yeah, I think you need to uh, listen to the guys that have gone before you. Like um, we Phil Ramone came to see us play and he loved the band. And so he produced the Stranger album. But when he got us in the studio, he taught us how to play in the studio. We could play live. Great. And he needed to capture that on the record that our feel. 
but he knew that there was some things that you do in the studio and some things that you don't do. And mm -hmm. he taught us that, you know, like, so when I did the stranger album, the guys that were in the road crew, we went on the road again and they said, it sounds like you, but it sounds like somebody took your balls and tied them to the seat. So you couldn't get up and leave, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> So if you had to boil it down, what are the what would you say are the differences between playing live and playing in the studio? Well, playing live, you play more more aggressive. Right. Um, you, you play to the audience because you want their response. Mm -hmm. When you make a record, you know, um, Don Familaro once said to me, he's, he was talking to some kid and I was standing there and he was talking about me and compared me, uh, of all the drummers in the world, to John Bonham. He said, Liberty and John Bonham have similar styles because every note that they play mattered. So that's what your drummers really have to learn. There's some things that drummers do in a, in a fill that really don't matter. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't make a difference. Everything Bonham did mattered. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, and for Don to say that about me, comparing me to him, I, I was like, I kissed him on the lips. I thought, that, you know, thank you, Don. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that comes from the fact that we talked about earlier, playing with records, understanding yes. what needs to be there, what doesn't need to be there. You know, I, a yes. lot of times you'll hear, and I know that you've heard it a million times, that it's like, one, two, three, four, crash, two, three, four, crash, two, three, <laughs> four, right. crash, right. Yeah, fill, fill, crash. You know, and it's like, you don't need to, you don't need to play all that stuff if just no. because it's the end of the measure. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Somebody once told me, they said, you make more noise when you leave something out than when somebody plays something in there. Yeah. Yeah. They, they say, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before that when, when people speak and they say, um, a lot. Yeah. That is a, it's a nervous reaction because they're afraid of, of silence. Right. So rather than leaving that open space, they say, um, uh, you know, uh, and they put all these fillers in and I, look i equate that to drummers the same way that when they're doing a solo or even when they're playing tunes they're afraid of that space and it's a nervous reaction to always fill it up yeah i agree you know i agree um I agree. and it's hard to get out of that um yeah you're right um <laughs> <laughs> i uh i think uh you know uh gotta... <laughs> um, yeah well um <laughs> so what do you how do you how do you get out of that how do you learn to be okay with that space is it I a think, maturity thing or did you practice that no well the way i learned like i said i sang along with the songs right uh and i think if you can sing with the song you're probably playing the right drum part mm -hmm. if you can't sing and play what you want to play then you're playing the wrong drum part <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting concept i like that yeah you know, like, like when Ginger Baker does uh, Sunshine of Love and he's accenting, it's getting near dawn. You know, the way he's, when yeah. Jack Bruce is singing it, it's like, whoa, that's, this song is taken off, man. It's mm -hmm. great, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that stuff. It's an interesting concept. I'm going to, well, I know what I'm going to be working on over the next uh, couple months. <laughs> it's going to be singing and playing. I'll have the microphone off so no one has to hear my voice, but. Right. <laughs> So let's talk about the projects that you have going on now and, and sort of where people can follow you, keep up with, with that and see you live. Yeah, well, we're, um, I got these uh, couple of things going on, you know, sporadically play with Ronnie Spector, like you saw, mm -hmm. um, get the phone call. Hey, you're going to be out of Nam? Yeah, you want to play with Ronnie? Sure. You know, then the big surprise, Hal Blaine playing with me was like, whoa. Right. I mean, I've sat next to a lot of drummers. Uh, played together like with Nigel Olsen, um, nice Elton John's band. Yeah, <laughs> you know you hear Nigel on a record and you think, oh yeah, he's good. You know, but when you see him play, it's like he's playing Elton John songs. You know, right? That right. that makes him great. And um, Hal was just a treat to be with. I hadn't met him before, and he's mm -hmm. told me many jokes. And you know, um, he's a great guy. We just but, saw Steve Gadd play with Chick Corea. Uh, at the Blue Note and sat right behind him. Yeah. And like, I've seen Steve Gadd play a bunch of times. I've been to clinics. I've, you know, listened to a zillion records of his, but sitting right behind the kit and watching him play, it's just like, 
you're like, oh my god, he's Steve Gadd. You know, it's uh, it's just, and you, that's I think that you sort of are echoing that with Hal Blaine, like being right there watching him play is yeah. a totally different experience. I'll tell you a story with Steve Gadd. I, me and Dom were in California at the time when when Steve uh, got sober and he was doing his first clinic at the uh, Drummers Collective. Mm-hmm. We were in the room with Steve, and Steve was nervous. He said, I'm really nervous. I said, what are you nervous about? He goes, I haven't played so so long. You know, uh, I said, you know, you you play great. He's, and he said, but everybody can play what I play now. And I looked at him. I said, but nobody can play it like Steve Gadd. Yeah, right. You know? right. He, he just went out there, and he did that bye-bye Blackbird where he does with the brushes. Yeah. You ever see yeah. that? Yes, I have. Yeah. Oh. I fell over. It was so great. He's, you know? he is just, I, I, there's, I mean, what can you say that? And, and that he, did, he did the same thing to me too. He came to see us play with Billy and, and, and he said to me, he goes, you play so unique. You, you play what you play. It's so great. You know, you don't play like somebody else. I think that's the secret. Is it, don't try to play. You have to try to play with somebody else when you're learning how to play. Right. But then, you know, Don Femularo said it the best. He said, you know, when you when you study music, the last page is blank in the book. That's when, when it's time to create your own thing. Right. You know? Right. But yeah, guys just stick to the routine. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- you know, for me, I learned, you know, from doing all these interviews that, you know, guys would just sort of steal from everyone and then you put everything together and then you create your your thing like there's nobody who's out there who out there is playing that doesn't sound or didn't didn't get something from other people exactly then you take that and you mold it and you you make it your own thing look there's only three things you do in drums right you play a a single stroke roll you can play a double stroke roll you play a rough right right that's it that's it you gotta you gotta (laughs) steal from somebody else (laughs) i uh, i stole like uh the beginning of don't let the sun go down on me has that ride symbol Keeping time mm-hmm. in the beginning, you can hear that on Honesty and Leningrad that I, I stole from Nigel, and I told Nigel, Nigel that, and I said, "Did you ever steal from a drummer?" And he said, "I stole from uh, Bobby Elliott and the Hollies." Uh, no, no, not Bobby Elliott. I stole from uh, B.J. Wilson from Procol Harum. He said, "You know that triplet roll I do in Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me," when he goes pop pop ba da pop pop ba da pop 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 pop. Right. He said, I stole that from B.J. Wilson, Brockle Harrop. He used to do that all the time. <laughs> it's You can't get away from it. You yeah. Know, everybody steals from everybody. I told Alan White, I said, in Still Rock and Roll to Me, that it's in a shuffle and, and that straight for fill that I do. I said, mm-hmm. I stole that from you. you. He plays on Instant Karma. I said, right. I stole it from you. He stood there and put his hand out like he wanted money. <laughs> <laughs> well, the beginning of um, uh, what Zeppelin tune is it? Um, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, I don't know, but Bonham took the the. Was it been a long time? Yes, Isaac. rock and roll. He rock took, and roll. Took, he took uh, a Little Richard tune. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So it's everywhere. Even Bonham did it. So. Um. So I'm gonna get back to these projects again. So you have um, you have the Slim Kings that you. So you're playing with Ronnie, but then you're also. How old is Ronnie now? I don't know if she wants me to tell you. <laughs> uh, well, whatever. She sounds amazing. She's like, yeah, still sounds is, great. She is amazing. Um, I do the Slim Kings. The Slim Kings is uh, my band. We do play all original material. We all write the songs. We get placements on some TV shows and stuff like that. And we play locally and just have a blast doing it. The guys are young. The bass player is 29 years old. Nice. The guitar player is like 31. And um, they, my old school and their new style brings this new sound. Uh, that, that's fun. And then there's the Lords of 52nd Street. Um, it's myself, Richie Cannata, who plays on the sax solo on all those great songs. Mm-hmm. Like Billy, you know, Still Walk Around to Me, All in a Good Die Young, Seems for the Tiny Restaurant, Stiletto, Stranger, all that stuff. And Russell Jobbers, who also, you know, if you look on the Glass Houses album, we're, you know, in the sleeve. That That's us. Right. And um, so we go out. We got a, a a guy that does Billy's parts. His name is Dave Clark. He was in a uh, tribute band on Long Island. Does a great job. And um, other guys to fill in. Like we have another guitarist, a keyboard player, and a bass player. Uh, the bass player was on tour with the uh, Moving Out show. 
So mm-hmm. he knew all the Billy stuff. But um, the thing is that we, Billy has dropped the keys to the songs because he can't hit the notes anymore. He's getting, you know, his voice is getting older sure. and can't hit the notes anymore. There's nobody except Billy connected to the records when you see Billy live. When you see us, there's three of us connected to the records. And the guy we have doing Billy's parts sings the songs in the key of the in records. The right key. So we sound more like the Billy Joel records than Billy Joel does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. None of those guys played on them. So. Yeah. And they're in a different key now. Yeah, so you can't call us a tribute band because I'm not. I'm playing what I've created. Sure. So, you know, I'd have a big ego if I was playing a tribute to myself. Right. So know? what do you guys call it? It's a... The Lords of 52nd Street. That's, no, I mean, but what, 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 oh. so if it's not a tribute band, what would you say it is? It's just. It's like the original members. So, uh, right. you know, but uh, on the back, on the cover of uh, 52nd Street, Phil Ramone gave us that name, the Lords of 52nd Street. So we use that. I like it. Yeah. I like it. So if that, um, so the Slim Kings is just the Slim Kings.com or Slim Kings.com. Yeah. Uh, well, Facebook's even better. You know, okay. Slip keys on Facebook. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll link up to all of this stuff so people can find you, can people people can find your shows, yeah, uh, and all that stuff. I'll put your your stuff on there too, so they if they want to follow you uh, individually aside from the bands and all that stuff as well. The, the Lords are on uh, Facebook too. Yep, I'm on here now. Actually, Lords of so it's Facebook.com forward slash Lords of Fifty Second Street. So yeah, and I'll link up to all that. People can check the whole thing out. They can follow you. They can thank you for being on here and and all that fun stuff. Cool, cool. Well, Liberty, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, uh, sharing your stories, sharing your wisdom. Also, it was great to to meet you in person. Yeah. And uh, thank you to Maddie Amendola for connecting us uh, via email, and then we got, but you and I got to meet in person as well. So that was that was fantastic. But I really do appreciate you for for being part of this, sharing you know, your I, knowledge and all that. Uh, I officiated uh, Maddie and Kim's wedding. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, is though when Maddie. Maddie's parents go out and they, they see people that know me too. Uh, Maddie's mom will say, you know, uh, Liberty married Maddie. And people think, <laughs> they're like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> too funny. <laughs> yeah. I should, I should send him a message. Like, Oh, I didn't, yeah, you, I didn't, didn't tell me that, that, uh, that Liberty married you or, or you got married. I don't know. Off the, Maddie, off the, I, Maddie, I didn't know you were gay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, hey, I didn't know that. I thought you were. I thought you were married. I didn't know you were married to Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool, man. Liberty, thank you again. A real, a real pleasure. I'll definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm moving soon, like I said, but maybe I can get out to, uh, to see you soon before cool. I, before I jet. It'd be great to see you again live. So. Yeah. Cool. Good deal. All right. All right, Liberty. Thanks again. See ya. I appreciate it. See ya. Bye. So there you have it, Liberty DeVito. I hope that you enjoyed that. Also, if you enjoy this podcast or any other podcast that I've put out, any of these 242 episodes, leave a rating and review. You can do that but just by going to iTunes and leaving an honest rating and review. And what those ratings do is help the podcast show up higher in the search results, helps let more people know about it, and helps spread the word about the podcast, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So if you could do that, I would greatly appreciate it. For the links and show notes to everything that we talked about in the podcast, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 243. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.